0: About to, Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro. Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control. Tell Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. o and Go. a Go. L. L. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie.
1: My name is Chris Hadfield.
0: And this is a special episode of Terranauts. Um, This is an important week for those of us in the space program. Um, About a week ago, by the time this airs on the 28th of January, um, that's a day that NASA has designated as its day of remembrance. And and although we're about a week late getting this out, um, it's an event that I wanted to mark on Terranauts. and, And I'll let Chris explain a little bit about why
1: uh yeah ian good to be talking with you and good to honor all these people Spaceflight is dangerous Any doing anything new and on the edge of the human experience is normally dangerous and in the pursuit and exploration of uh, things that lie beyond the atmosphere uh, inevitably we have made mistakes and had accidents and strangely enough i don't know if it's just a random or if it's because this time of the year you know it, it kind of affects people's thinking But the three big NASA accidents that have occurred, the Apollo 1 fire, the uh, Challenger accident, and the Columbia accident, all occurred uh, towards the end of January and the 1st of February. And NASA just has decided to try and honor those three crews, but also, you know, everybody who has given their life in the pursuit of the unknown. Um, people who have dedicated themselves to a life of service right to the point where the service might demand their own life. And, and even though NASA has declared this sort of a, a day of remembrance in, in human space flight, it's global. It, it becomes honored um, by all of the space agencies of the world and, of course, very deeply honored by uh, by people like myself.
0: Right. So, to start off today just to to honor those that made the sacrifice before we start talking about them I'd like to just start by reading the list of astronauts uh, that have been casualties in the space program and I'll get I'll let you start Chris Sure uh, the
1: first was Vladimir Komarov and then we have Michael J Adams and then we had three that died together uh, Georgi Dobro, Dob- Dobrovolsky and Viktor Patsayev and Vladislav Volkov they all died in uh, in a Soyuz accident back in 1971.
0: And the crew of Challenger in 1986, Gregory Jarvis, Kristen McAuliffe, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Judy Resnick,
1: Michael Smith, and Dick Scobie. And then the Columbia crew, uh, 17 years ago. In fact, today, as you and I are recording this, that's right. Um, Commander was a guy I went to test pilot school with, Rick Husband and his crew was uh, Willie McCool, uh, Mike Anderson, Dave Brown, Colt Chavla, Laura Clark, and Elon Ramon.
0: And then a number of astronauts have died in training, including Valentin Bodorenka, Theodore Freeman, and Elliot C., and Charles Bassett.
1: Yeah, and then uh, in the Apollo program, in, in a horrible training accident, Uh, three guys died back, uh, in 1967 on the 27th of January, the Apollo one crew, Gus Grissom, who was one of the original Mercury seven. And then Ed White, who did the first American spacewalk and uh, Roger Chaffee. And then we've lost, uh, Cliff Williams and uh, Robert Henry Lawrence, who was actually the very first black astronaut who died in a 104 crash out at uh, Edwards. And, uh, Sergey was uh, Sergey Vozvitsky, and then who who died actually doing training in sea survival in the Black Sea. And then the most recent was uh, Michael Alsbury, who died with Virgin Galactic testing their new uh, spaceship a few years ago, trying to understand, um, even using the latest technology, how we can make this uh, safer and how we can start to do this incredibly complex thing better and better with time, but always still acknowledging the danger and the risk that took all of these lives. And, and so uh, today
0: is, uh, is dedicated to all of those, those astronauts who have, who have given um, everything to the space program. Um, now, since Chris and I are veterans of the space shuttle and the space station programs, I think we're going to focus a little bit more on the two shuttle accidents um, that both occurred historically in, in this week of late January, early February, because um, we both have at least some experience of those. Chris Chris has much more direct experience than I do. Um, so just to set the scene, the first of those shuttle accidents was STS-51L, usually referred to as the Challenger disaster. It launched on the 28th of January, 1985. It was the 25th space shuttle.
1: 86.
0: 86. Bay. Sorry. 25th of January, 1986, sorry. It was the 25th space shuttle mission and the 10th flight of Challenger. It was supposed to deploy a new tracking and data relay satellite, but 73 seconds into its flight, it broke apart during ascent and all of the crew were killed. The second shuttle mission was STS-107, usually referred to as the Columbia disaster. And it launched on the 11th of January, 2003 uh, after a three week science mission Columbia disintegrated during re-entry on the 1st of February, 17 years ago today. Eight, <laughs> four, can I can I add 18 years ago today? There you go. Um, Columbia disintegrated on re-entry, and once again, the entire crew was lost. So I remember the Challenger disaster. I was in university at the time. It was before I started working on the space program. To me, it was more of a, a news event, but I do remember following the story, but it was a little bit closer to home for you even then, right?
1: Yeah, I was a a fighter pilot at the time in Northern Quebec at Bagotville, and I'd been out flying that that day, and uh, came back to my desk, and one of the, my best friend on squadron, uh, Tristan D, came running into my office and said, "Holy cow, have you heard this?" And we were listening to the radio, and um, and I was dreaming, just like it ever since I was a kid, of being an astronaut, and and in fact the reason that I was a fighter pilot flying F-18s in in Northern Quebec, and the reason I already had a a university degree was because I was heavily pursuing maybe someday flying in space. And the shuttle program was brand new. As you said, that was a 25th flight of the shuttle and Mark Garneau had flown on the shuttle just yes. a couple years previous and there was opportunity coming and, and, and the whole thing just came crashing down with the, with those lives. Um, and, and I just thought, well, that's the end of that. You know, how, how are they ever going to convince the American taxpayer that they can be trusted again? You know, that loss of life and all of that money and all of that effort, you know, and, and to so violently and visibly um, fail. You know, how will they ever summon the courage and the capability What with what has to be essentially a flawed design for that to happen? So I thought, okay, well, I'm... Um, I need a new plan for my life. And so I actually went to start getting my airline transport ratings so that because I was already a pilot and I thought, well, I, you know, I can go work for air Canada and that's a good career. And, um, but, and it might roll into something we'll talk about later, in. but my wife, Helena, we had, we had two kids and she was pregnant with our third with our daughter. And at the time we, when she noticed that I was signing up for my licenses, she said, what are you doing? And, and, and I said, well, I'm, um, you know, I, I have to provide for the family. And she said, giving up on your dreams doesn't come for free. And, and if you decide, okay, well, uh, you know, you have to feed us. And so therefore you have to give up on your dreams. Your dreams aren't going to go away. You're just going to have to, you know, put them underneath what's actually happening. It's going to be like a burr under your saddle for the rest of your life. And we don't know what NASA is going to do yet. And, uh, and there's, you know, we don't need to give up and, and who knows, you know, and you still might get to do these things. So, and we're getting fed, you know, we don't make much money as a Lieutenant in the Air Force, but we're doing okay. So let's let's stick it out for a while. And um, so I, I didn't have a direct, uh, you know, I wasn't part of the Canadian, spa- Canadian Space Agency, didn't even exist yet, but I wasn't part of the space program, but in my, my brain it was. It had, it had driven so many of my life decisions. It was sort of the, the goal in the distance that was helping me to choose what to do next. Most of the things I'd accomplished at that point were sort of in primal or, or secondary pursuit of yeah. that goal. And um, and so that, w- that was a big, thoughtful day, the uh, the 28th of January, 86. Right. And, and of course, the shuttle program didn't end
0: because a lot of other people refused to give up on their dreams, I would say. Um, And it took them more than two years to get back to flying. I think uh, I read it was 32 months. Um, Now I arrived at JSC in 1993, so they'd been flying for five or six years, but
1: um, you got there even earlier than that, right? Yeah, in fact, I was a test pilot out at Edwards for the return to flight, you know, when, uh, finally in 88, when, When they recovered enough and changed enough things and procedures and they took the first space shuttle back to space after the challenger accident Um, i got to watch it land out of the desert at edwards and then i got selected as an astronaut and showed up in august of 92 at the johnson space center in houston and throughout all of my couple years original first two years of astronaut basic training um getting working towards flight assignment and all it was still very strong in everybody's sentiment. I mean, it had been not very long ago. And, you know, the the desire to, to launch, even though you're not quite ready, the, you know, the the get-to-space-itis, you know, you think, oh, the weather's not quite as good as we wanted, and yeah, this problem cropped up. But we had learned with, with the the lives of those Challenger astronauts that, you have to build yourself a set of rules and stick with them. And and you can't just bend them because you want to when the moment comes. And that rigor and the fact that everybody gets a no vote, you know, no matter where you are up the up the decision chain, if you think this is a mistake, then speak loudly and you're gonna get listened to. And um, and that feeling and, and then just socially, you know, I, I started playing with a band there. The yes. band was called Max Q, and it had formed to try and cheer people up after the challenger accident you know someone after a few months said hey that's enough of moping around that's not going to bring anybody back yes. let's you know let's have a sock hop or something and yes. some of the guys who played in college and high school formed a band called max q and they didn't yes. we don't play great but play well enough and yes. and um and when i got there i was playing in this band that was really sort of a uh, a challenger legacy band and and that's a really important part of this is uh is the lessons that you learn and how they shape your future decisions are how you don't squander the lives that were yeah. lost yeah. in an accident like that. Yeah.
0: And, and you know I, I mean I arrived year or so after you did and, and I certainly heard the echoes of Challenger in the hallways now that I think back on it particularly maybe at the time I wasn't listening for it but uh, you know one of the things that, that always struck me was uh, whenever there was a launch uh, you could go to you know there's always rooms you can go watch TV and, and almost everybody would stop what they're doing and go go watch. And in all the times that I ever watched the launch at JSC, no one ever left the room until the solid rocket boosters successfully separated. Because of course, it was the solid rocket booster that caused the accident. And it was just, it was almost ingrained in everybody. The launch has not been successful until the solids separate. And that was- yeah. one of, you know,
1: They're dangerous. They're, they're pushing you through the air yeah, and they're just a big yeah. tube of explosives. So. Yeah, if uh, if you turned learned the channel before then, you just don't know what you're looking at.
0: And I think the thing is, before Challenger, it was one of the things people didn't think about. I'm sure that, you know, once you were clear of the tower, a lot of people started to drift away, but not after Challenger, man. Yeah. Now, now Columbia, you know, that was something that was much closer to home, especially, especially much more for you than me. Um, in a very real sense, it was kind of a personal tragedy for you, right?
1: Yeah, Rick, uh, Rick Husband, who was a command... I mean, I knew everybody on board, of course, because I'd been in the office for over a decade already, um, and uh, they were an amazing group of people. I mean, you just look at some of the capabilities. Ilan Ramon, the, uh, the Israeli on board, I mean, what an accomplished person who'd been so well-respected and decorated back in, in the Australian Air Force. Uh, you look at someone like uh, Dave Brown, who, um, who was not only a medical doctor, but also a fighter pilot and been a test pilot school. One guy had done all those things. And, and he, he was a, uh, a circus performer as well. You know, that, that's what he did in his spare time. Amazing human beings. And Kalp Nachavala, who'd grown up in in India, but been drawn by the the dream of the Apollo program and had come and gotten her PhD in America and stayed and gotten her citizenship and selected as an astronaut and was was flying on her second space flight. But Rick Husband and I, we're, we're at test pilot school together. Rick was from Amarillo, Texas, and um, went to Texas Tech, a Red Raider, and he was an F4 driver in the Air Force. Great, great guy, and a, a singer as well. Good, really beautiful voice, really clear. He he'd put his way through school as a singing waiter. And uh, and when we were at test pilot school out at Edwards Air Force Base, any party, Rick Rick and I would end up, you know, singing and dancing and, and uh, we did a bunch of flying together and projects together. And so when, when that vehicle came apart uh, on that February morning, um, I'd been in Russia for a year and a half as NASA's Director of Ops there. And I'd just come home the day before. I'd been outside the United States for 18 months. I came home, had sort of a bad night's sleep because of the time change. Got up with my wife and daughter just to go get brunch. And, uh, and then our phone started ringing and went back in, turned the TV on and, and watched Columbia coming apart in the skies above Texas and, and all those little bits tumbling to the ground, including all my friends. And um, I remember Helena just crumpling to her knees and it's it just like all the air just went out of everything. Everything just deflated to, to a sad shell of itself. And, and recognizing what all this meant—the loss of those lives—we'll never see those people again. The loss of the vehicle. Yes. How you know? How are we going to deal with this? How how can we possibly <clears throat> recover from this? And then how are we going to face the the spouses and the children of all of those those families? All of that just crashing in on us on that first of February. Yeah,
0: I mean, for me, it was a lot less, you know, direct and personal. It was kind of more like a kind of a death in the extended family, I guess. I mean, you know, I remember where I was sitting when I heard same thing. A friend that I hadn't talked to for a long time, but that I'd worked with at NASA called and just out of the blue and said, "We lost Columbia." And I said, "What are you talking about, Dan? How do you lose a space trouble? You know. Um, it, and I think it was the same thing. It was like, "How how could this happen? Like like how, how does this?" I think that it was one thing that it was brought us, a lot A lot of us up short, is that we had forgotten the very real risks that we subjected the crews to when we put them on a space shuttle. And it took the death of seven people to remind us of all of that. And, you know, in the mo- weeks and months after the event, I saw the pain that everyone who was involved went through. I mean, suffering the loss of friends and colleagues, but also the loss of confidence. Everybody asking themselves if there was something more they could have done, or that they should have done. It, it was, uh, it, it was very genuine. The people at NASA really felt it deeply and personally that they had let that crew down. Um, so, you know, why, why do astronauts keep doing that though? What, what what inspires you to go take that risk in the first place? Why is it Why is it worth it?
1: Well, something I concluded a long time ago, Ian, is that. Uh, everything worth doing has risk. And we sort of take a lot of it for granted, you know, learning to walk. I mean, when I when I learned to walk, I split my skull. Fortunately, when you're when you're learning to walk, you're really short, so you, you can't fall very far, but still far enough that if it's a hard surface, you can, I, I crack my skull, and one of my three kids cracked their skull when they were learning to walk. But walking, you know, it's so important. Learning to ride a bike, you know, those, those are obvious you know, plebeian things, but they definitely have risk. And and exploring the universe, understanding everything that lies beyond our atmosphere, um, trying to use the high point of space to look back and understand where we're actually from and really understand our planet as a, as a closed single system. It's, it's the grandest of adventures. And it's, it's the natural extrapolation of human behavior since we learned to walk i mean it's it, it is just a manifestation of the combination of our innate nature and our slowly improved ability to invent things you know from the your feet to your shoes to your bicycle to your motorcycle to your airplane to your spaceship um so none of that is going to stop it you know to, to deny human nature and say oh we should I'll just stay in bed and you know wait until everything's 100% safe. It's, it's never going to happen. So the real question is um, how do we take those risks and, and how, how do we decide which risks are worth taking? And there will if, you know if you raise the bar high enough, there will always be people that will try and do everything they possibly can to jump over it. And there's always going to be people fascinated by the unknown. But the way that we solve it, is to say this is a risk worth taking and now I'm going to change who I am in order to understand that risk so well that I can I can drop its level down enough that I think uh, we can go give it a try today and you know prior to the challenger accident in 86 and then the columbia accident in 03 there was one person who had to say we are we are not risk free uh, there is no way we can get that way we are not ready for launch but i think today we're ready enough that we're going to be willing to take this chance you know the administrator of nasa has to sign off and say i know we're not 100 percent ready for launch no one will ever be but we're going to be we think we're ready enough that today is the day we're going to go uh, take the risk and when after the columbia accident in 03 uh, of course, I did a lot of walking and thinking. I was over at Rick husband's house, you know, with Evelyn, his wife and his kids and at the church service. And, um, and I was thinking, you know, what, trying to picture what the right thing to do next is. And I just flopped it around in my head because I'd already flown in space twice. I thought, so if my ship, sh- ship had come apart and, and it was Rick over at my house talking to my wife, what would I expect Rick to do? And I sure wouldn't have expected him to quit like I, I would have been insulted if if I had lost my life pursuing this thing and and the reaction had been, well, we, we never thought that would happen. We should all quit what we're doing and you know and, and go do something um, less challenging that never n- never would have occurred, I don't think to Rick if if our roles had been reversed, and it just helped reinforce to me the importance and the uh, responsibility of the job and that is an astronaut's job is not um, you know to get adrenaline in their veins and go be a cowboy in space their job is to take as little risk as possible in order to accomplish something that otherwise would be impossible to do and to spend their entire adult professional lives to understand every single risk as well as we can and then to learn from the mistakes of the past, to make this progressively safer and safer so that uh, every subsequent space flight benefits from from the things we got right and even more so from the things we got wrong.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I think when I think of the courage and the sacrifice of the crew, I think that everybody at NASA felt that the way to honor that was to get the shuttle back flying. Uh, And and I think in some ways, the thing that people most worried about was that they wouldn't be successful that Congress or the American people would run out of patience before they were able to prove they could get it back in the air. And and people were really worried about that because they felt like the right way to honor the sacrifice of the crew was to get the shuttle flying again. And and honestly, it's one of the things that I'm profoundly grateful for in my career that I was able to contribute personally to getting the shuttle returned to flight. And, And it was important to me because I felt like it was an important way for me to honor the sacrifice that those people made because that crew, by deciding to put themselves in harm's way, enabled me to do what I did. I could not have had a career doing what I did if there weren't people like them and like you who were prepared to put themselves in harm's way. And and more to the point, I felt like one of the things that I was helping to do was to figure out how to learn from what happened to them and make it safer for everybody else who decided to get on board that vehicle or any other vehicle after the fact. And that that was important because having people who continued to believe that the risks could be minimized far enough to want to put themselves in that harm's way is what keeps us doing what we're doing. And without the crew having been prepared to be in harm's way and without them making that sacrifice, we we wouldn't be able to keep moving forward.
1: And we learned a huge amount from the Columbia accident. Uh, you and I both worked on it. I was chief of robotics for the NASA astronaut program at the time and how you stop the vehicle being damaged on the way up, how you inspect it when you're in orbit to make sure there's not damaged, and then how you have the capability to repair any damage mm-hmm. on the outside. Those those were huge benefits from it that are still being used by, um, by everything that's flying in, in space today. So that... You know, th- being able to contribute directly was uh, was was a, a huge positive, yeah. and we made the right decision yes. because we flew out the rest of the shuttle program. We needed it to finish building the space station. Right. It couldn't right. get built without. We had each each flight after that. We had to ex- recognize, hey, we've lost two of these things, but and so we understand the risks more clearly. And um, but we, we we did it right, and we didn't hurt another person. Um, we flew until uh, the shuttle program had completed all of its major objectives, and, and we've learned all those lessons from it, and, and we've moved on to the ships we're flying in space now. So there's a tremendous sense not only of, of having contributed, I think, but also of pride in having uh, not squandered the loss, but having learned from it, and, and now uh, having spaceflight forever be safer and more capable as a result. I mean, one of the things that I learned personally that I think a lot of people internalized
0: and, and maybe people did after Challenger and then forgot it by the time of Columbia is that in space, just because it worked the last time doesn't mean it's gonna work this time. You, you know, you, you every time you go, you have to do the analysis. You have to convince yourself you're right again. You can't say, well, it worked the last time. We can we can check that box uh, yeah. in space. That doesn't work.
1: Yeah. It's also intriguing to look that the Apollo 1 fire was in 67. And then if you add 19 to that, you get 86. Right. Um, so 19 years later was Challenger. And then from 86 to 03, I think that's 17. Yeah. So 17 years later, we were at Columbia. And and if you take 17 or 18 plus 03, you get to where we are right now. And it's because we're also a little bit generational, Ian. It's yes. it's easy yes. that that mindset you just referred to, it's easy to think that everybody of the previous generations was stupider than you are. <laughs> or because they didn't have a, uh, whatever, a, an iPhone that they couldn't possibly have understood how things worked or, you know, using a slide rule, they use slide rules to walk on the moon, you know? So we always tend to discount the intelligence and capability of those who've gone before and to have sort of this bulletproof nature of thinking that, you know, we know what we're doing and they were dumber and, that generational shift it takes 10 or 20 years and you sort of then everything else is so far into history you've lost a lot of the corporate memory and that's why it's so important to honor it and and to remind ourselves every year at the end of january early february hey these were smart capable top-end people and they made a mistake and we can't just assume that somehow you know we're we're impervious to all that or that it's not gonna to happen to us and we have to go back to the drawing board every time and recognize the reality of the danger to go do these things. Yeah.
0: Anybody who has grown children is more than aware of the effect you're talking about, I would say. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> sure enough. Uh yeah. And
0: and I, I you know I think that's particularly why I wanted to do this this show um, to to mark that because I think that every Terranaut out there every one of us who go to space without ever leaving the planet um, owes a debt to the people who have and the people who didn't come back when they tried. Um, We wouldn't have a chance to do what we're doing if there weren't people who are willing to take those risks. So, you know, I guess I'll leave the last word to you. Um, You know, on this day, 18 years after the last accident, how do you think that crew and the other crews would want to be remembered by us and and by those of us who are still engaged in this activity.
1: Well, when I was born, Ian, no one had flown in space. Uh, I'm just old enough to have been born just before Gagarin flew. So all of this has happened, all of the incredible accomplishments. You know, the first spacewalk and the, the people walking on the moon and the first flight of the shuttle and the Hubble telescope and and building two space stations and all these things that have happened, three space stations all that has happened in such a short period of time, as well as the accidents and the lives that have been lost. It is the the trail of successful progress. And I think what every one of the folks that we're remembering would want is to see that that path, that vector continuing to be built forwards. And if anything, to be accelerated based on the huge foundation of knowledge and, and um, yeah, and sacrifice that was made to get us here, and we're there, in fact. If you look at where we are in both use of space and space exploration right now, I mean, tr- try and disengage yourself from space, and, and it's impossible for weather forecasting, or for global positioning, navigation, or for communications, or for or you know, whatever you want to include in that. Um, but also, building on the experience, the hard rod experience, we have so many new vehicles that are taking people to space, new opportunities for people to see our world and the universe in a new way. Whether it's Virgin Galactic just about to, to fly for that'll take people up to the bottom of space, or whether it's uh, SpaceX with their Crew Dragon that can now start to take paying customers, still expensive, because it's still brand new. Even a Canadian, Mark uh, Pathy, is gonna fly yeah. where, uh, You don't have to have been one of the pioneers who's done all of the dangerous work to now have a very good chance of reaping the benefits of this of this technology and then bringing those benefits back into the the human consciousness. So to me, the way that we really remember these people uh, and honor them, my friends and and all of those ones who went before, um, is to is to continue to push ourselves into the unknown. Do it using every bit of knowledge that we've learned, every hard-earned lesson, every bit of invention we can come up with. How can we push ourselves based on all we've got uh, right to the very limit of human capability to be able to go and do something that up until a very short time ago would have been impossible? It's been the history of the human species to take us everywhere we are and all the things that we've accomplished. Um, and the fact that we're going into the third dimension and leaving the planet now still excites me like I'm a little kid. And and we go with great thanks to those who have sacrificed the most.
0: Well, I don't think much more needs to be said on the topic. Thanks, everybody, for joining us uh, on this episode of Terranauts.
1: And we'll talk to you soon. Fly safe.
0: Come on, let's keep the chatter down.